So as I said, this is kind of a, a jumping point, if you will. Examine your, everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, oftentimes throughout Scripture, we're told just this, right? To abstain from evil. I think in, in Romans chapter 12 expresses the same thing. And last week's sermon, Pastor Sean talked a lot about good, which all under God's providence, all under his sovereign plan, which was, again, affirmation for me to preach this sermon today. So with that in mind, we're told to hold fast to that which is good, but abstain from, from evil, from every form of evil. So what exactly is that? We understand these things on a... On a very, I guess, superficial level, right? Good and evil. We all have knowledge of such, not only through life experience, but through being blessed and endowed with a conscience, right? The law is written on the hearts of everyone, every man and woman. Well, what I want to do is take us back to the beginning. Because after all, the, the saying goes, if we are to understand the fruit, we must go back and examine the root, right? So, we'll, we'll be examining four specific points today. Starting with the introduction of evil. Then the character of evil. And in that, kind of what God calls evil. And then ending out with, how does this, what does this all mean to us, Right? After all, it doesn't make sense to just simply read what the Bible says and then consider it. Yes, that's great. We're instructed to do so. But at the same time, we have to understand what this means for us and how this applies to us and how exactly do we abstain from evil and cling to that which is good. Now, again, this goes all the way back to the beginning. The Hebrew word for evil is the word ra. I... I <laughs> I did not put it in my um, notes for the slideshow, so bear with me. And this, this Hebrew word, ra, transliterates to evil. And the definition is evil, distress, misery, injury, calamity, adversity. So, so all these things, all these trials. However, there's, there's certain things that are evil but not bad. Or bad but not evil, right? After all, when we go through our life's trials, certain things like sickness... Our, our health issues, financial issues. These things are bad on a, on a human level and even at times on a moral level. However, they're not deemed to be evil, right? So at what point does evil and bad meet? Where do these two things intersect? And I thought it was interesting in, in considering this and studying this out that the first mention of evil comes in Genesis 2.9, right? Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. So, of course, we see that they're good, right? And I always explain that definition of good in the Old Testament sense, in the biblical sense, as being that or functioning in the manner in which God created it for. It fulfills the purpose in which God created it for. And when God looked on creation... After that sixth day, he said it's good. It's very good, right? At that point in human history, we functioned according to the purpose, according to the reason that God created us. But what did he create us for? The word tells us that he created everything for his glory. So he created us to glorify himself, right? So bear that in mind. And so this first mention of evil given in Genesis 2.9 is pertaining to the knowledge of such, right? Uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And at this point, evil is not really called bad. It's simply something that exists, that God set in the garden, if you will, to, I guess you could say, test us. Obviously, God knew the route that Adam and Eve would take. God knows the route that we're all going to take at various times. We are told that in James that God tempts no man with evil, right? And he, he cannot be tempted with evil. So it's not that God was tempting them with evil. However, God will test our faith at times. And I think, I truly believe that it's those moments that refine our faith. Those sort of fork in the road moments, if you will. That we all face at various times in our life. Typically, it's due to trials and hardships, those things that we don't understand, why they happen in our life, why they happen in life. And we can always bring it back to sin and sin nature. And that initial sin and disobedience of Adam and Eve 
which we're told caused this curse to come upon all of humanity, right? So we understand that, but at the same time, we have a hard time grasping, especially like I was expressing to the class earlier, especially in those times when we're, we're doing, seemingly doing what we're supposed to be doing as Christians, doing what we're supposed to be doing as His children, living in obedience to the Word. And these things come upon us, like, like the Hebrew definition, evil, calamity, adversity, right? Misery, distress. These things come upon us and, and we can bear, get to the mindset that, Lord, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to us? Are we not obeying your word? Are we not seeking after you? So we, we have this understanding, right? And, we, and, we, and, we, and with that, we understand what causes us to stray away from the faith in that. Now, getting back to this, this first mention or this first introduction of evil mentioned in Genesis 2.9, it simply says the knowledge of good and evil. And at this time in human history, is seemingly only possessed by God, possibly by Satan, although not through divine revelation, right? And of course, we'll get to that a little bit more later. But at this point in the text, at this point in human history, we see that we're simply told, to abstain from this tree. Do not eat of the, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? So now we have the method of introduction. The method of introduction of evil into the world. God chose this, this fruit from this tree. And we don't know exactly what kind of fruit, you know. Oh, I guess I take that back. We do know what kind of fruit it was. It is the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. But, you know, throughout the years, there's been various fruit to kind of express what that was. Some people say it was like a pomegranate, you know, the apple, that's a that's one. And I think that sometimes comes from I don't know if one causes the other, but you know, men have an Adam's apple. I don't know if where that all came in, but it's depicted this this fruit is depicted in many ways throughout the throughout time. The truth of the matter is we don't really know what it looked like, know what it smelled like, tasted like, the texture um, I, I love peaches. I really hoped it wasn't some sort of a peach. So, um, and, and like I said, this is seemingly only possessed by God, possibly Satan, although not through divine revelation, but through experience of such. Isaiah 14 through, uh, 14, 12 through 21. Um, where am I? Oh, anyways. Um, Isaiah 14, 12 through 21 gives us that, that account of when Satan was cast out of heaven, right? And it was at that time that his sin was the sin of pride. He sought to make himself higher than the Most High. Now, we can relate to that as humans, right? I often tell people that pride is the root from which we get all forms of sin, all branches and fruit of sin. Now, of course, that's not to contradict what we read in the New Testament, in the Gospel writings, where Jesus said money is the root of all forms of evil. Uh, what that's expressing is the fact that those with money are more likely to take uh, comfort in their riches and their materialism and, and those things that are deemed to be evil by God, namely sin, are readily available to those with money. And even and we could we could take that a step further, especially nowadays with modern technology. Sin is readily available to all of us as just the click of a button or the swipe of a finger. But that's what that passage concerning the evil um, associated with money is getting at. The love of money. The love of money. Yes, the love of money, and that's a, that's an important thing to remember. The love of money. After all, when we when we place our love and we place our our trust, when we when we place all any and all of these things before God, well, then it becomes an idol. And I always tell people that humans are so good and so efficient at sinning. We make any and everything an idol, right? The, those things which God created for good, we we can even make an idol. Our our husbands, our wives, our children. I don't, I don't play golf, but I, I definitely see how some men make an idol out of playing golf or other things like that going shooting right going hunting uh cars you'd be amazed at how many hours car guys will log on their cars at the to the detriment of their own marriage at times so we can make idols out of any and everything 
So, now we see God possessing this knowledge of good and evil. And again, he doesn't really explain himself in this. And the serpent attained this knowledge through experience, right? Through the committing of an evil act, seeking to make himself higher than the Most High. And in doing so, now he convinces man to attain knowledge of good and evil in the same prideful manner, right? After all, the serpent says, now the serpent being more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made, he said to the woman, indeed, God has, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the word. Now notice, he first seeks to divide and conquer, right? That's the tactic of the enemy. So what he does is, you don't see Adam at, at Eve's side in this, for one. We can safely deduce that there, he, he was there, but not there, if you will, right? Not only that, but he gets, he gets the woman to question the word of God. Not only question the word of God, but in doing so, he twists the scripture. Same tactic that we see in, in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, right? Seeking to divide and conquer, coming to Jesus at a time when he was secluded. Now, of course, we know that there's a lot more to that. God's providence and God's sovereignty is surrounded in that, right? It's all according to God's will. But what does he do? He twists the scriptures. He, he tries to get Jesus to question God's word, God's authority in all of this. And of course, this is the method in which God introduces evil. First, the tree and the fruit, and now the serpent, and through this deception of the serpent, and while we're told in Genesis 3 1, we're told that the serpent was more cunning or crafty than any other beast of the field. Now, the Hebrew word used here is the word arum, A R U M, arum. And the definition is prudent, shrewd, crafty, sly, sensible. I thought the last one was a little bit interesting in coalition with this deception of the, of the serpent. Sensible. Now, it's interesting that the Hebrew to English trans, uh, translation of crafty, cunning, or prudent, depending on your translation of Scripture. Um, because when we consider that the definitions of these words can, uh, but do, they can, but do not always hold a negative connotation or, or, uh, or negative definition. And what I mean by that is it's not necessarily... I think of the saying sly as a fox, <laughs> right? It is being crafty or, or, or slick in that sense. It's not necessarily a bad thing. We, we, we recognize the, the badness, I guess, surrounding this account and, and, and that word and the context that it's used. But depending on the context, it's not something that's always a negative thing. Um, to be sensible, right? There's nothing wrong with being sensible. Obviously, we don't want to be senseless, right? And we don't want to be overpowered or controlled by our senses. So, again, these things don't always hold a negative connotation depending on the context and the usage of these words and the description that we're giving in using these words. It may be, um, it may be in some ways likened to a compliment, Right? being sensible you're being you're she's he's a really crafty guy you know things like that but here we we see it has, holds a negative connotation perhaps the serpent's statement in genesis 3 5 is simply a method a method of persuasion in in what he says for god knows that in the day you eat of it your eyes will be open right um and notice what he says and you will be like god knowing good and evil now, again, consider this as simply a method of persuasion. At this time, the, the serpent, the devil, had some knowledge of good and evil, enough to know that he could turn even Adam's mindset to evil by initiating this, this persuasion method, if you will. He, he doesn't say to them, you, in the day you eat of it, you will be like me, as I am like God, Right? Or you will obtain the knowledge of good and evil as I have. No, he simply says he knows that when you eat of it, you will be like him. You will be like God. 
And of course, from a human standpoint, for those of us as Christians, it's our life's goal to be like God, right? In, in that we practice selflessness, we practice love, even to our enemies, or, or like I like to say, our perceived enemies, because oftentimes those who we perceive to be enemies don't know that we have a problem with them. It's oftentimes that anger is one-sided, that wrath is one-sided. Um... So this, again, just a, this is just a persuasion method as opposed to a confession of lack of possessing such knowledge. Now, after these original, I mean, these interactions, original sin and the curse, the next mention of evil comes in Genesis 3.22, which we'll look at here in just a minute. But first I wanted you to notice the response, um, or the reception, or the response to evil. First, we have the reception, I mean, the response of God given in Genesis 3.11, right? Which reads, And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, of course, God, this is all rhetorical. God knows what happened. He knows why it happened, how it happened. He, he knew the deception. But what this is, is a chance for confession. And a request for forgiveness, an opportunity for repentance, which is what the Lord grants each and every one of us when we come to Him in faith, right? After all, we have to remember what Romans 10.9 says, if you confess your sins and believe in your heart, you will be saved. For with the mouth one confesses unto righteousness. I always get those two mixed up. And the other one... Uh, believes in his heart to salvation. So it's a twofold thing. You have to believe what you're saying is what, is what that's getting at. And, and confess outwardly that you want to be forgiven. And, and that's the opportunity that the Lord is giving right here. Right? Um, so... And secondly, we see the response of Adam, right? Verse 12, The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. <laughs> such a human response, right? Such a, such a human response. Husbands, I hope you don't pass blame off onto your wives in this manner. <laughs> it's kind of like, huh? yeah, it was okay, but yeah. And ultimately, what they're, what they're doing is, is blame shifting onto God, right? Because after all, he says, the woman that you made me. In other words, Lord, I have no other woman. I have no other options. This is the one I'm stuck with. This is the one you made me. And she deceived me, right? That's kind of what's going on here. I mean, we can, we can speculate all we want, but let, let's be real about it, you know? And, and what does the Lord say in response? The woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me from the tree in IA. So it's not really my fault. She deceived me. I, you know, I, I thought she got that from a different tree, God. I wasn't too sure. Well, next we see the response of Eve in, in verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And again, that blame shift. No, no, I know Adam said it was my fault, but really, Lord, it, it wasn't my fault. The serpent, I was deceived. He told me that I could obtain the knowledge of good and evil. Not only that, but more importantly, Lord, he told me I would be like you. And, and that's what appeals to us, right? That, that threefold progression of sin. The lust of the eyes, right? They seen that the fruit was good. The lust of the flesh, they wanted to taste that fruit and the pride of life. I deserve to have this fruit. After all, why should I not possess this knowledge? Why should any knowledge be hidden from me? And of course, brothers and sisters, that's the resounding cry of the Gnostics of the day, right? And the agnostics now, today. And those people who claim to possess and teach a greater form of enlightenment to get to heaven, right? People like Buddhists, for example. It's all about enlightenment, knowing you just need to, you need to get in your word because that's how we become enlightened, amen? 
I mean, after all, anything apart from this is simply man's lies and man's embellishment and twisting of God's word. So, again, getting back to that. The serpent deceived me and I ate. The serpent deceived me and I ate. And of course, as I mentioned, we don't see Adam present here. We do in the questioning, but not in the, the initial deception. Says she went and gave him of the fruit, which implies that he was not immediately present, which as a good loving husband, carrying out the commands of God, he should have crushed that serpent's head and not let his wife fall into that deception. There's a definite command for us as husbands there to oversee our wives. Uh, just like the Lord tells them to cultivate the garden, right? Grow and cult keep and cultivate the garden. That's the, same, that's the same commandment that we should apply to our wives. To keep guard of her, protect her, and help her to grow, to nurture her. And more, most importantly, help her to grow in the faith in her knowledge and understanding of God and His Word and His character. And then we see, or we have, I should say, the, the response of the serpent mentioned in verses 14 and 15, or to the serpent, I should. In verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. Okay, so now we take that and we apply that to the creature, right? Because after all, that's what he's talking about. The On your belly you'll go, you'll eat dust. Anybody ever seen a snake? I've never seen one with legs. There are a lot of interesting lizards and a lot of interesting critters out there. Uh, immediately, I think of a salamander. Disgusting. Uh, they're, they're dirty. I mean, uh, I had a friend um, accidentally step on a salamander cage and cut her leg. Something awful. It was nasty. It was like infected within like less than 24 hours. Salamanders are gross. They're dirty. But, I mean, they're, they're cool looking, okay? I'll give them that. But, but again, and, and what this does, this is not only a curse on the creation, the serpent, but we can take this and apply it to all of creation, because after all, we know that the curse from the initial sin affects all of creation. So, so we see that. We see that there. And then in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the hill. Praise the Lord for that first gospel presentation, right? Praise the Lord for that. And of course, that's the spiritual application of this condemnation that God dishes out towards the serpent, right? The spiritual aspect. And we recognize this now. Hindsight is twenty twenty, right? Looking in retrospect that this is speaking of Jesus on the cross. His heel was bruised. His heel was injured, but he was not dead. And on that, what did Jesus say? It is finished. The work of salvation, the plan of redemption is finished on this cross here today. You know, my wife and I were watching um, something the other day. And it was showing how... I don't know if you guys have ever had a snake as a pet or anything like that. The very first pet I ever had was a snake. It got old and uh, I don't know, there was some health issues with it and it died. Well, my dad put it down. So, but he, he cut its head off and he was showing me how the snake's body and the head will still remain alive, right? And, and I was watching this video the other day and this, this, someone had tried to kill this snake, right? And, and it cut their head off. But the, the, the snake's head latched onto the snake's body. So it was literally trying to consume itself. And I was telling my wife, that's, a, that's the perfect metaphor of the work of Satan in our, in our world and in our life. He, he's dead, right? God won. Jesus won. On the cross, it was finished. The work of redemption was done. That fight and that battle is over. He's already won it. But at the same time, that head still remains. That head still remains to latch onto us every chance it gets. And, and in that, the, those heads are still uh, very venomous. You can die from getting bit by just the head of a serpent. So, uh, something to bear in mind, I guess. But it says, um, yeah, so the, so the work was done. Now, of course, we have, where is it? 
of the result. The results of all of this. After the introduction of evil, after we see the response of first God, then Adam, Eve, the serpent, now we have the result. All of humanity is cursed. That's exactly what we read here in verses 17 through 20, right? Then Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, you have rendered your God-given authority as man and as head of the family, as head of the household, you've submitted that to your wife. So that's, that's one of the main sins that was committed by Adam in all of this. So men, lead your home in a godly manner. Cannot stress that enough. So, I know that sometimes it's not as easy as it sounds, especially when we have kids growing up and growing, asking more questions, going into the world to be educated, and coming back with those ungodly questions about society and the agendas being pushed today. Sometimes it's hard to navigate through those things and to use those teachable moments to show our kids why this is wrong and this is right, especially, especially in the age of relativism where everybody's free to determine what is good. And, you know, my brother, who is a non-believer, posted something about people saying my truth and your truth. I agree with him. That's stupid. I hate that. It drives me nuts every time I hear somebody. There's, there's the truth and there's lies. There's the absolute truth, right? God's word. And then there's the lies of the world. There's no in-between. There's no free to determine what reality is, what truth is. It's absolute. God has given us that out of love. Well, so we have the, the curse pronounced on first um, mankind and then all of humanity, right? Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. But both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So we have the, the complete curse of all of creation. And I'm reminded of this constantly. In the type of work that I do, I'm always pulling weeds. Uh, so I'm, I'm, my mind goes here a lot. And I was telling Sister Sheila that, you know, if I ever start my own landscaping company, my own groundskeeping company, I'm going to call it Thorns and Thistles. And my, my motto is going to be, Mankind's Curse is My Blessing. <laughs> but even in this, God's grace is revealed, right? Because after all, He gives us the strength. He gives us the means. He gives us the motivation to wake up every day and go to work from the sweat of our... And I'm looking at Onahay because my brother here, he works more than like anybody I've ever met. But it's not easy. But even in that, that, that grace extends to even the wicked because even the wicked are allowed to prosper. And sometimes more so than the righteous, right? That's when I think of, I think it's Psalm 73 where, where the psalmist is just perplexed about why the wicked prosper and the righteous seem to suffer. But in the end, brothers and sisters, we can trust, according to Scripture, according to those beautiful chapters, Revelations 21 and 22, we can trust all of God's promises and we can trust that God, in the end, will set all things right, wipe away every tear, we'll not have to worry. And it doesn't matter about financial stability in, in eternity, right? That's not what we do it. I mean, if we could go to heaven and have the restoration of all our health and our youth, have the means to, to, to you know, afford to do everything that we wanted to do, have all of you guys there with me, but no God, well, then what's the point? After all, the word tells us, whom have I in heaven but you, right? Earth has nothing I desire but you. After all, we would rather be a janitor, a doorman in the house of God than a king on the earth. Brothers and sisters, this is the type of mentality that we need to cultivate in our own lives. Because at times, especially when the attacks of the world come in, right? We, we tend to think that this life is more of a burden than a blessing. You know, I was initially thinking of going to um, preach about Christian liberties, obviously, 4th of July weekend. Freedom in Christ. That's not where the Lord took me. <laughs> but we have those liberties. We have those liberties to do what we want. What God tells us to abstain from is sin. 
and embrace that which is good but at the same time he gives us the the right to choose in that right so again we see humanity cursed we have all of creation cursed um All of creation cursed according to Romans 8.22 For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Now, jumping sort of back to Genesis 22-24 Now, now as, as this initial interaction this introduction of evil into the world we, we begin to see the character of evil very dimly, right? But we can deduce that Deception and questioning God's word, deception, questioning God's word, and twisting his word are evil. Right? Because after all, that's what was practiced by the serpent. So we begin to get a, a better picture, a better idea of the character of evil. We begin to see that it's not good. And in verses 22 through 24, Read, then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. We'll not unpack that today, because that's a whole sermon in itself. But, and now, he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden, Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he stationed a cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So, God, out of love, condemns evil here. And what I mean by that is He places protection between His creation, His greatest creation, humanity, and the means by which we will fall into eternal evil. After all, when you consider what's going on here, what's taking place and what the Lord is saying, He didn't want them to stretch out their hand and live eternally in sin and iniquity. After all, that's what would have happened. But now, because of the curse that was pronounced on humanity, we experience death. But it's for our benefit, really. Because it's at that point that those of us who love God get to go home and to be with Him. But it's at this point that we see sort of that, that intersection. That intersection of when bad meets evil. And, and here, at this point, evil is, well, deemed to be not good. It's for our benefit that he placed that flaming sword and that cherubim in between us and the tree of life. Otherwise, like I said, we would eternally be in our, in our sin. Um, and of course, this is the next mention that we have of evil in the book of Genesis or in Scripture as far as that goes. Now, as we begin to gain a clear understanding of evil, we're now shown that evil is not good. And I, I just think that's so funny. To me to consider the intersection of evil and bad because there are certain things that could be deemed evil but not necessarily bad and vice versa and, and a lot of it a lot of those things come now in this age of relativism right there's a lot of things that are evil but they're not necessarily deemed to be bad by by man uh, by society now, based on the wording here, we're given a picture of a, a parental protection, which at first glance may seem sort of cruel or selfish, if we're being honest. Why wouldn't the Lord want us to live eternally, right? But that, again, I cannot stress it enough. He wants us to live eternally with Him, not in our sin. So that's why He implemented and authored the plan of salvation, so that we can be redeemed and reconciled to Him. And uh, so we, we recognize God's logic and reasoning behind his actions here. Now, if we were to continue on in Genesis, we would see how immediately or seemingly immediately after this introduction of evil and the condemning of evil comes one of the greatest acts of evil that man could commit murder. Now, if you if you just briefly look over to chapter four, um, we have the whole account of Cain and Abel. Right. Again, almost immediately after the fall of humanity, almost immediately after that initial sin and disobedience. Now, this is one of the greatest acts of evil that man could ever commit. Uh, we were talking about this in class, the difference between um, involuntary murder, which according to the law was, is called manslaughter, 
and, and murder. One is premeditated and one is accidental. And we were talking about this in the context of um, you know, parent, uh, drug addicted moms and, and those quote unquote accidental deaths because of those drugs or that the baby's getting in the womb. Those women are charged oftentimes. Murder, things like that. But an abortionist is not charged. How could it be any more premeditated? And even so, shouldn't the moms of these aborted fetuses be charged with murder? So see how, see how contradictory man's law is? And, and now do you see what I mean when I say that we live in this age of relativism and, and how something can be evil but not necessarily bad according to man's morals? It's disgusting is what it is. So... After, so and and the reason that this this sin of murder is so so heinous and, and so vile is because it's in one of the greatest acts of murder. It's because it's it's the attempted complete. It's the complete destruction of that which is created in God's image and His likeness, right? And we, being so sinful and such haters of God attempt to destroy everything associated with God. Even to the extent that we seek to destroy that which is created in His image and His likeness, and by extension, by extension, destroy Him. Obviously, we can't destroy God. But that's, that's, that's why murder, premeditated murder specifically, is so horrible. And it's by this sinful act of aggression that we are, in a sense, first introduced or begin to see and understand the character of evil and what God says is evil. There are certain things, like I said, that occur in our lives that are bad, but not necessarily evil, right? The trials of life. I feel bad for anybody that has to deal with either themselves or a loved one having things like cancer or, um, you know, uh, just various diseases. Uh, I think of uh, liver. I had family members that died from drinking from those liver, you know, the, what is it, cirrhosis uh, and, and things like that. And those things are, are bad, but it's not necessarily evil, right? We're only, typically we're only affected by those things, obviously, in, you know, our immediate family and, and things like that, but they're not necessarily evil. And what, what this um, immediately brought to mind is what is not good? What's deemed to be evil? Well, evil is practiced by the wicked. We see in Genesis 6, 5 and 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of, man's, of man was great on the earth and th that every intent and thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And he was grieved by that. So, so we, we see that the Lord deems this wickedness and, and these, uh, this behavior, these acts as evil. They're not good. And, and man's heart is only evil continually. And we, we also are told how that affects God. He's grieved in his heart by it. I always love the, when it comes to sin, I always love the illustration of the dog returning to his own vomit. It's, it's a disgusting picture. But we are that dog. In as much as we return to our sins. I don't know about you guys, but I get so tired of struggling with sin. I get so tired of praying and asking the Lord for forgiveness for my attitude, for my sarcasm, for whatever. So I, sometimes I feel like, not only do I feel like it's one step forward, three steps backwards, but sometimes I feel like I'm on my knees praying the same prayer and asking forgiveness for the same things over and over. And Lord, you know my heart. You know I don't want to do these things and I hate myself. For, I feel stupid. I feel ashamed when I commit these things, Lord. Can't you just take them from me? Well, that's not how it works, right? It's by this that we're refined. It's by this that we choose Him over sin. But it's not easy. I, I long for the day of glory, if for no other reason, to just not struggle with sin and not to be tempted by sin anymore. I get so disgusted with myself, with my thoughts in that. But it's practiced by the wicked, right? It's condemned by God. Psalm 26.5, I hate the, the assembly of evildoers. Evildoers obviously being those who do evil. <laughs> 
and practice wicked and, and I will not sit with the wicked. So God doesn't want to have any part of the wicked, right? Um, there are... So, so he, he doesn't want anything to do with them. He cuts himself off, cuts them off from him. And what it is, is it's a fulfillment of what we read in, in Romans chapter 1, right? Giving them over to a debased mind, a reprobate mind, to commit those things which are unfitting, which are unnatural. Um, Psalm 101.8 also tells us, Every morning I will destroy all the wicked of the land, so as to cut off from the city of the Lord all those who do iniquity. So, not only does the Lord not take fellowship or take part with the wicked, He literally cuts them off from the land. He doesn't want them in His heaven. It's kind of what that's expressing. The city of the Lord. We know that, you know, Jerusalem, New Jerusalem, blah, all those things. But he doesn't want to have anything to do with it. And morally, like I said, there's things that are morally bad, but not evil. Um, the midwives in the book of Exodus. I don't know if you guys remember this account, but the book of Exodus tells us, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, yeah, and the other was named Puah. And he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them. But let the boys live. So the king of e Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing? And let the boys live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and gave birth before the midwife could get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. So again, that intersection of bad meets evil, we've seen that in Genesis, and now we have this account of something that's deemed to be bad in society, According to the ruler, according to the Pharaoh, he, he wanted the destruction of all the males, and we know why, to cut off that, that line under God's providence. But at the same time, the midwives sort of lied in that. Now, we're not told specifically that they lied. That's the common, the traditional teaching, I guess you could say. They could have been telling the truth, right? They could have, it's very likely that the Hebrew women were more as it says, hardy <laughs> than the Egyptian women and gave birth um, quick. <laughs> I know my little Charlie, she came, she came pretty quick once it was active. So it's, it's a possibility. But however, this is something that would be deemed to be bad according to the Egyptians, but not according to God. After all, God says, blessed are the midwives because of this. So again, bad, but not evil, Right? Preserving life is never evil. And for those of us who love God and love life, it's never bad. Disobedience to government and authority is bad, right? This is plain and simple. Um, another, another account that came to mind in this was JL. And I wish my little, my little baby head was in here. No, just kidding. Um, JL's bad but not evil. And I mean that in every way possible. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I love my Jay, but oh my goodness. Sometimes. Now this is a lengthy one. So if you want to turn in your Bibles, feel free to. I'll give you guys a brief moment. Um, because it, it, it might be a little bit hard to read up there on the overhead. But Judges 4, 17 through 22 tells about jail and of course this was during a time of war and a lot of a lot is going on here so judges 4:17 reads now Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of jail the wife of Abur the Kenite and there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of 
Haber the Kenite, Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my master, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. And he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with the rug. He said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. And I love, I love the hospitality. I love the servant's heart of Jael in this. So she opened a bottle of milk and gave him a drink, and then she covered him. And that's, that's significant in my opinion. Milk was a little bit more precious than water at the time. So verse 20, he said to her, Stand in the doorway of the tent, and it shall be if anyone comes and inquires of you, and says, Is there anyone here? That you shall say no. But Jael, Eber's wife, took a tent pig and seized a hammer in her hand and went secretly to him and drove the pig into his temple. And it went through into the ground, for he was sound asleep and exhausted, so he died. And behold, um, sorry, I just got lost on my, my notes. 22, okay. And behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And he entered with her, and behold, Sisera was laying dead with the tent pig in his temple. So, at first glance, this is bad and evil, right? This is horrible. She, she deceived him by allowing him into the tent. She, she kind of fluffed him up a little bit, gave him milk instead of water, exercised a little bit of hos hospitality, and then at first chance, bam, pegs his head to the ground with the tent pig. Now, now, this isn't good. Obviously, we don't murder. We just were talking about that, right? But at the same time, we have to consider the, the context in which this account takes place. This was a pagan. This was a pagan king, a pagan general. If you, I think it was a general, actually. So, with that in mind, he was wicked. He was unrighteous. He didn't serve or follow the one true God. Now, that's exactly why... Even though we may read the accounts of, you know, Joshua, for example, when the Lord instructs him to go into the promised land, kill everyone and everything, man, woman, child, livestock, everything. And we're like, wow, that's really harsh, God. It's like, yeah, but those people hate God. They worship false gods. They worship false idols. They are the wicked. They are the unrighteous. So by doing this is one of God's methods of exacting his judgment on these wicked nations. So we see how this thing, this, this murder, if you will, is bad, right? According to morality and even according to God's commandments. But when we consider the, the, the details, the intricacies behind it, we begin to understand that God's wrath is upon the unrighteous. Children of wrath is how I think Ephesians chapter 2 puts it. We're all children of wrath at one point. Praise the Lord that he saw fit to save any of us, right? And of course we have all those, like I like to call them, byproducts of salvation. Which mean we don't go to hell. We're, we're persevered throughout our life. We're made to endure. We're blessed with the Spirit. We're able to discern. There's so much more that salvation entails in that. But look at what, what we read of, of J.L. In, in this passage. Now, even though that might seem evil, that might seem bad, that might seem immoral, that, that's, that's horrible, she murdered this, this guy. Well, look at what God's word says of her. Most blessed of women is J.L., the wife of Abra the Kenai. Most blessed is she of women in the tent. He asked for water. She gave him milk. In a magnificent bowl, she brought him curds. She reached out her hand for the tent peg in her right hand for the workman's hammer. Then she struck Sisera and smashed his head. And she shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he bowed. He fell, he lay. Between her feet he bowed, he fell. Where he bowed, there he fell dead. Pretty, pretty clear on that last, that extra emphasis. He fell right between her feet. There, dead. But God says, blessed of women is jail. He, he, in a sense, gives her, gives her a good job for doing what she did. Now, is that to say that God is evil, embraces evil? No, of course not. God is benevolent. God is righteous. He's just in all that he does. And like I said, when we consider the context and the intricacies of the passage, it makes a lot more sense that God is good in what he allowed to happen. So now, what does God call evil? Wicked, right? Deception, taking advantage. There's a big one. 
And of course, we could we could really we could exhaust this text and, and just go over tons and tons of passages. I had to narrow it down, honestly. But Micah two one and three says, "Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. When morning comes, they do it, for it is in the power of their hands. They covet fields and then they seize them. Premeditation." And houses and take them away. They rob a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, from which you cannot remove your necks and you will not walk haughtily for I will be an or it will be an evil time for it will be an evil time. So any deception. And of course, we could go to I think it's chapter six of Proverbs when it talks about the six things that God hates. Yea, there are seven. When you when you study that out and you add it all up, it's it's this one who acts deceptively, one who takes advantage of the less fortunate, one who is inconsistent in his character. One of the things it says in that description of the six things that God hates, it says one who searches with his eyes, shuffles his feet. It's deceptive characteristics. It's sneaky. It's, it's deception is what it boils down to, taking advantage. We also see throughout Scripture in Proverbs specifically where there's a lot of condemnation of those who take bribes and things like that, right? Pride. Oh, brothers and sisters, that's a big one, right? We're just coming out of June. We see the pride in our world, in our society. I saw a video here recently. Uh, it was supposed to be the devil talking. And he was saying, you know, I've, I've, been, I've been implementing my pride. My pride, um, I can't remember, agendas or whatever. He's like, the one that's doing really good right now is the gay pride. Because not only does that um, entail the full rejection of God, of all things God, but it also, if embraced, means the, the destruction of the human race. After all, those people can't reproduce, right? So, again, 1 Peter 5.5, 5, You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that's just cut and dry, brothers and sisters. Pride, again, that root by which we get all these other branches of sin, John, 1 John 2.16 also tells us, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, there's that threefold progression of sin that we talked about, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And when we consider passages like that in light of today's sermon, in light of today's study, we, we see the line, the defining line between what is good and evil, right? Or what is bad and evil and what is good. Everything that is good is, comes from the Father. Those who love darkness rather than light. And those who fully reject Christ. That's what we're told in Matthew 12, 31. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, what he's getting at there, you have to remember that this passage comes directly after Jesus was um, casting out demons. And they said that he was doing so by the power of Beelzebub. Right? So... The, what the, what's going on there, this blasphemy of the Spirit is a full rejection of God. And so much so that they're accrediting the work of God to Satan. The work of God to Satan. In, in Isaiah chapter 6, we read, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And that's exactly, that's exactly what's taking place there. And brothers and sisters, that's exactly what's taking place nowadays in the society that we live in. Those who fully reject Christ... And I'm sure you have a sibling, an aunt, an uncle, a cousin, somebody in mind when you read these sorts of passages. Verse, um, chapter 1, verse 24 of Hebrews reads, Therefore God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. In other words, they completely rejected God's truth, the truth, the absolute truth, the only truth worth vesting in, embracing, the only truth worth proclaiming. 
and he gives them over to, the, to a debased mind and worship the creature and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever and I always love how the Apostle Paul just has to add that in who is blessed forever for this reason God gave them over to degrading passions for their women burning their flesh for women and men with men committing what is unnatural which by the process of elimination we can safely deduce that men and women together are natural right but, but that's what it is, the complete and utter rejection of all things Christ, the love of God. And, and in that, we're told that he gave them over to a debased mind. And one of my favorite things to say to people, and I'm sure you guys have heard it, you probably get tired of me saying it, is that if you want sin, God will give you over to your sin. If you want God, he will give you more of himself. He'll give you a deeper understanding of his word. But you have to get into his word and be in communion with him. I mean... It's not one-sided, or it shouldn't be. It was one-sided when, when we came to Christ. Now we have a relationship, right? I always tell people when it comes to being lost, and people use this, I'm sure you've heard it, I found Jesus. I found Jesus. He found Christ. Well, you weren't looking for Him, right? How could you find Him? He wasn't hiding from you. No. Instead, we're like a two-year-old child that gets lost in the field at the park playing with the ball. They don't know they're lost, but in the meantime, their parent is searching frantically for them. Right? Just like, uh, I think we lost uh, briefly uh, with Eleanor. The little Eleanor. Mamaka was searching for her. I was on board with you. But, and she was just fine. She was playing upstairs. But in that brief moment, she's lost. And in Miss Ronica's mind, she was lost for that half second, even though, you know, she was upstairs just playing. And, we, and the lost object can't seek out the finder, right? It's the finder who has to seek out the lost object. And we're also told in... in um, oh. Oh, well. We're also told that Jesus came to, to his own, or no, that men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their, e their deeds are evil. They like that concealment of darkness. And for any of us who have been in a criminal lifestyle before we converted, we understand that. Much of those things are, take place at, under the cover of darkness at, at nighttime. So, and now we're told, getting back to, to sort of our, our opening verse, we're told to abstain from the very appearance of evil. But, but see, look at Mark 7, 21 through 23 says, For from within, out of the heart of man, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things from, proceed from within and defile the man. So, so how are we supposed to abstain from these things if these things already dwell in us, right? Romans 7, 19, For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want to do. And we understand that struggle of, of Romans chapter 7, right? So how do we do this? And of course, we can just look at Mark and, and say, okay, well, don't do those things, obviously, right? But at the same time, how do we cling to what is good? and abstain from that which is evil. Well, it does well for us to have lists like these to show us what is good and what is evil. Uh, you know, I could have just taken us to uh, Galatians chapter 5 for this whole sermon, and I considered doing so, but this is a lot more fun. But <laughs> so, so, so then, with all that in mind, with, with keeping in mind that we're human, broken humans, born with sin nature, and, and the fact that evil is already within us, regardless we can't do anything about that up until the point that we come to Christ. Well, Romans 12, 9. These, these are the things that we implement into our life, right? Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. There you go. That's, it's that simple. Abhor evil, cling to what is good. Love. Love, love, love without hypocrisy. Without double-mindedness. Uh, if you guys need a, a template for that, go to 1 Corinthians 13. Right? We don't, in love, we're, we're not supposed to keep track of others' shortcomings, the wrongdoings that others have done to us. And even though we as humans tend to love, 
And we try to love genuinely. And we can never truly express agape love or chesed love, depending on the Greek or the Jewish. We can never do that. That's only love expressed from God to us. Even our greatest deeds are sullied with sin. Whether it be out of pride of gaining appreciation and acknowledgement for what we do or anything else. Instead, love without hypocrisy. Um, in, in Matthew chapter 5, he also says, Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than this is evil. Be a person of your word. Out of love, you, you do that thing. You do those things. You keep your word to those who, who you love. Right? Um, again, Romans chapter 12. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. And of course, we're also told that as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. In other words, those perceived enemies. Like I said, a lot of times that's just one side. You do not let the sun go down on your wrath. And I think we've covered that so we, we understand what that is and what it isn't at this point. And if you don't, feel free to ask any questions. Romans twelve twenty one: Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that's how we keep from giving the devil a foothold. Right there. Do not be overcome by evil. And we could take it a step further. You know, the fruit of the Spirit ends with self-control. And this is a call to exercise that self-control. Even in, even in instances of anger, of aggression, of discontent. And when we feel like we're being wronged. Especially as Christians. But we have to keep in mind too that the world is going to hate us. Jesus told us that. Hates us because it sees him. Ephesians 4.32 Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Again, holding those grudges is not good. Forgive, forgive, forgive. Think of the model prayer after it says, after it says, Amen. It says, For if we do not forgive others, why should we feel that the Father in heaven should forgive us for our wrongdoings, right? Ephesians 5.16 Making the most of your time. Well, how? Well, this is how we make the most of our time. We love. We forgive. Right? Because not only are humans' hearts evil continually, but the days are evil. And we see that progression. That progression into to sin and iniquity. And as I said before, we've come to a time of relativism where evil is called good, good is called evil. And woe to them. Woe to those who call such, who say such things. And of course, in Romans chapter 1, we see that Jesus, or God condemns not only those who practice these things, but those who give hearty approval to those who practice such things. Again, really speaks of the day and age that we're in now. Do whatever you want. You can be whatever you want. You were born a what? Oh, that doesn't matter anymore. Right? You can even be a cat, apparently. I don't know how that works. Uh, I mean, I, I identify as a six foot three, 250, you know. Ooh, I'm not, though. <laughs> like I tell my kids, we could pretend to be whatever we want. That doesn't make you that thing, right? We could pretend all day and all night. Doesn't mean I'm going to be 6'3 and ripped. Not, a, not with my discipline or lack thereof. <laughs> but Ephesians 6.13, Therefore... Take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to uh, resist the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And that's a whole nother story. I mean, sermon and study for another time. But how do we do that? By getting into the word. You know, I, I talked about how in the beginning, God said everything is good. Yes, it's very good. Because it worked and it functioned and it operated in the manner in which God created it to. And brothers and sisters, if we want to have that goodness in our life, if we want to have any semblance of goodness, then we need to get back to that. We need to get back to the reason and fulfilling the purpose in which God created us, which is to glorify and worship Him. We do so, we do so by living selflessly. We do so by turning the other cheek. We do so by, at times... Being passive. I'm not trying to say that we should be doormats. We should definitely stand up for ourselves. And we should always stand up for God. I mean, if there's one main thing that I've learned from David and Goliath, 
is that we should stand up for our God and defend our God. Not that he needs us to, obviously. We, we have all these accounts throughout the Old Testament writings that show us he doesn't need us to. But at the same time, that shows where our heart is. And displays our faith to the world. And, um, yeah. <laughs> it displays our faith to, the, faith to the world. And gives us the endurance, the strength, right? And it's all because of him. Isaiah 5.20 Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Again, speaking of the day and age that we're currently in. 3 John 1.11 Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. It's, it's that simple. It's that easy. It's that cut and dry. There's no gray area. It's all black and white with God. There's sin and righteousness. There's disobedience and submission. Where are we at with this? How does this affect you? Does this apply to you today? Are, are you submissive and obedient? Are you self-serving? Abhorring what is good to an extent. First Peter, above all... Keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. And that's where it boils down to, brothers and sisters. He loved us first. He loved us so much that He sent His only begotten Son to die for our sins. We're told in 1 John that we know what love is because He first loved us. I don't even think the lost world should use that word. And that's just my opinion. But at the same time, when, when, we, when we cut away all these extras, you know, all these commandments, right? Love. Love covers a multitude. Love for what? First of all, love for God. Second of all, love for your brothers and sisters. Thirdly, your neighbors and even your enemies. And I don't know if you've ever loved on your enemy. They, they do one of two things. They get really mad and don't want to have anything to do with you again. Or they get over it. <laughs> so... Either way, it's, I mean, it's like a win-win situation, right? Because one way you won't have to deal with them, the next, they'll be loved. And what it boils down to is it comes back to this. Examine everything carefully. Use that spiritual discernment that the Lord blesses us with. Hold fast to that which is good, namely Jesus. That's why the gospel is called good news, because it's good. Taste and sweet that it, see that it's sweet like honey from the comb, right? Have you tasted of His grace today? Have you tasted how sweet it can be? I don't know about you guys, but I love honey. I eat it with everything. Oh, there's nothing better breakfast than a croissant with honey. But taste, taste of His grace, taste of His goodness. We see His word being described as bitter. It's bittersweet, right? The, the plan, the message of salvation is sweet. It should taste sweet like honey in our mouths, but it's bitter because we, we don't want to keep that in. We want to share it with the world. We want all to know this kind of love. We want all to understand what is good and what is bad and how to abstain from that which is evil and cling to what is good. So brothers and sisters, I pray that you do so. And the only way we can do so is this, giving our life to Christ. After all, He became sin so that we could be righteousness, the goodness of God in Him, in us. That's why God sent Him, so that we would be conformed to his image so that we could get back to what he created us that statement yes it's good it's very good amen